It's time for the Chip Race. Hello and welcome to the Season 7 finale of the Chip Race Bankroll by Unibet Poker. I'm David Lappin alongside Darrow Kearney and would you believe it, it's our 49th episode. Well, we promise you a two-time EPT champion. You're going to have to make do with the new WSOP Europe main event champion, Jack Sinclair. He sits down with Darren and I for an interview recorded the day after his huge win. We will also chat to our good friend German poker pro Martin Mulsow. Four-time APT champion Sam Razavi is back this time with a strategy segment on a hand from his WSOP Millionaire Maker second place finish. We've got all the news and final results from the IPO, WSOP and Battle of Malta. But first... As most of you will remember, we kicked off this season with an interview with high-stakes cash game and tournament player Antonio Esfandiari. Well, in that interview, we asked him an interesting question about old-school players that I decided to cut out and use as a jumping-off point for a topical chat. Well, this week we're going to have that chat. Without further ado, here it is. How do you feel like the, uh, for want of a better term, old-school players are coping with the modern game? Nograna, for example, has been very honest about the amount of study he's put in in the last year or so. And he says that it only makes him competitive rather than dominant like he used to be. Are the Wizards, as you call them, blazing a trail that most of the players from an earlier era just can't keep up with? Yeah, I think that's probably pretty accurate. Back then, there was no real knowledge and or information of the math and the science behind the game, right? And so now, computer programs have essentially broken down the math and the science behind poker and the wizards have essentially figured out a way how to implement that at real time speed and that's pretty tough to compete against so you know when you play with these guys they just don't give anything away yeah playing with robots so if you ask me it's not really all that fun or entertaining a they're boring as as can be most of them not all of them because they just take it so seriously and B, there's zero social aspect anymore at the poker table. There's very few guys that are willing to have a conversation, have a chat, and have fun while they're playing. So, A, it's very difficult to make money because they literally don't give a nickel away. And B, it's not really all that fun. Yeah, I spoke to Barney Boatman about this recently, and Barney's great quote was like, if I wanted a real job, I would have gone and got a real job in the first place. Uh, (laughs) What have these guys done to our beautiful game? (laughs) <laughs> um, it does feel like the level of work you have to put in now uh, just you really wonder like is it worth it for even for these guys I agree with them you know it's funny because if you go back 15 years nobody really knew how to play poker there were a few guys that were playing pretty aggressive three betting here and there and back then it was actually called over the top it wasn't even called the three bet there was no next step <laughs> now there's the three bet the four bet the five bet the six bet etc etc but everybody has gotten better in the last 10 years everybody kind of knows how to play poker essentially and then you know the top tier the wizards are just on another level and it's just not as fun or as easy as it used to be well there you have it from antonio i have you here dara and i do want to unpack what antonio said in that piece first i guess the obvious question is are these guys robots uh, I don't think they're robots, but they're they're obviously a very different personality type. I think introvert might be a better word. We've obviously seen this in other sports as well. You know, if you think back to snooker before the arrival of Steve Davis, um, there was a sort of a certain type of extroverted personality that tended to uh, excel at snooker, or at least be drawn to snooker because it seemed like a pretty easy way to make a to make a living. And then Steve came along and just completely dedicated himself to practicing and got much better than everybody else. And people said he was boring as a result and very one-dimensional. I think we're kind of seeing the same thing in poker, that the personality type has swung from extrovert to introvert. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of looking at Obviously, Antonio spends a bit of time there mentioning the social aspect, but I do want to put that to one side because I think there's more important stuff to unpack. You, in your answer to him or in your response to him midway through, said that the level of work that is needed to be put in is, is quite considerable these days. And you mentioned Barney's comment about what have they done to our beautiful game that we have to work so hard now. I couldn't help but feel like you were being, let's call it generous, Antonio, uh, and the old schoolers there because... Well, you might look like an old schooler, Dara, you are far from one and you are exactly the type of person who's chomping at his heels these days. Yeah, well, again, like, that's just my personality type. I actually enjoy the study and the work. Everything I've done, it's not just the results that I'm focused on. I've actually enjoyed the process. If we flash back to my running career, you know, I started as a recreational jogger. 
then became a marathon runner, which requires much more training, and then took it to the absolute extreme level of ultra marathons, where you have to put in an insane amount of training, or at least in the eyes of most normal people, an insane amount of training. But the the upside for me was that if you were willing to put in that amount of training, you were more or less guaranteed a certain level of success, which is not true in shorter races because it's essentially who's won the genetic lottery when it comes to those things. So I've always liked the idea that the harder you work, the better you do. And I sort of came into poker with that attitude. Now, it used to be quite difficult because you were sort of the sum of the best players that you knew. If you personally or socially knew a lot of really good players that you could run hands by and run spots by, then you had an advantage over everybody else. But the rest of us were sort of fumbling around in the dark. I think the real thing that's changed in the last few years is the arrival of the solvers, which means now we can solve spots with a fairly high degree of accuracy. And that motivates people like me to actually put the work in because we know that we will actually get good output from the solvers. Well, you're bringing me to my final point quite neatly there. He mentioned that the uh, wizards have simply not made it easy, certainly not as easy as it used to be. I couldn't help that there was a little hint of entitlement there from him in that answer. And obviously you speaking about hard work kind of on the opposite end of it. I remember when we interviewed his very good friend, Phil Lack, uh, who's much more understanding, I felt, in his answer or his response to a similar question. He simply put it down to the, and this is his phrase, the natural evolution of information, which I thought was a lovely way of putting a sort of an inevitability of if things can be worked out, if computer programs can be created to solve certain things, they will eventually get strong enough The brute force calculation will eventually be enough and and then people will access the information that way. What's your view on that one? Yeah, this is kind of a flashback to a conversation I had pretty early in my career at an Irish Open where I went out to uh, to dinner with John O'Croote, Mickey Peterson, Rupert Alder, and a, a few other guys who were crushers or, or were soon to be crushers. And there was this discussion about how much we needed to hide information. And at the time, people were worried about sort of the arrival of the training sites and the effect that that was going to have on accessibility of information to everybody. And the conversation sort of went backwards and forwards for a while. And then a Scottish player called Andrew made an excellent point, I thought, at the time, which he said, look, guys, it's just inevitable. Information gets out. That's the bottom line. There's no point in trying to essentially stick your thumb in the information dike. The information <laughs> will flow out. And you can obviously choose who you're going to help along the way. Um, and that'll probably be your friends. But in the end of the day, everybody's going to have access to all of the information. And I think that's been borne out. The training sites obviously were the first sort of big revolution of information. The solvers were, I would say, the second big revolution in that area. And it's basically changed the game now from who socializes the best and who can operate the best of pretty limited information to all the information is out there now and how much of that can you absorb and actually use. I saw a very good tweet by Finton Han recently where he said that like a lot of people say they want to be the best poker player in the world, but they don't really, because if they did, they would study every hour and, you know, give it the best shot. Really, they, they just like the idea of being the best poker player. <laughs> I really like that. Well, I guess in answer to the question, how are the old school guys coping? Not very fucking well, frankly, uh, unless they get their finger out and start running some spots through PO and talking to other like-minded guys who are smart about what they do in poker and very adept at using the modern tools. Because as you say there, Dara, it's really the future of the game. It is the natural evolution. We're in that paradigm now. And if you're from the previous paradigm, you're in trouble. Yeah, 100% agree with that. We're joined now by a regular on the poker scene for many years. In his career, he has been known to play the biggest and the smallest buy-ins, often at the same time. His career highlights include a third-place finish in UKIPT Cork and a 60k result when he finished runner-up in Super Tuesday. Consistency personified, his screen names have been in the 99.9 percentile on official poker rankings for seven of the last eight years, with 3.5 million in online winnings. He is the king of bowl comps. He is, of course, Martin Mortal Moo Mulsau. Martin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here, Martin, and thanks, David, for absolutely butchering that name. Martin Moo, is that bad? It's, it's Martin Moo. Martin Moo. I'll do it again. I'll fucking do it again, right? <laughs> Christ. No, and I'm taking all that criticism out. Uh, he is the king of bowl comps. He is, of course, Martin Myrtle Moo Mulsau. Martin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, right down to it, Martin, I want to talk about the term bowl comp that I used there at the top. A common phrase now in the poker vernacular, many people don't know that that expression originated with you. Can you tell our listeners what a bowl comp is and how you came up with the phrase? Uh, actually, I didn't come up with it. Like someone from the UK came up with it and he said it comes from like a bowl of rice, which is for like regular people, regular poor people. And yeah, comp comes from competition. So it's like a pleb tournament, <laughs> basically like a very cheap tournament. 
yeah. you didn't come up with it, you definitely popularized the phrase. I never heard it until I heard it come out of your mouth. Um, you have been the king of boat comps over the years, won many of those types of tournaments. Any particularly miserably small ones that come to mind? I think like two years ago, I won a live tournament with 11 runners. <laughs> <laughs> they had their 50k estimated prize pool, which was actually like 2k when it happened. <laughs> Yeah, I remember Martin's sort of characteristic, which made him almost unique, was that Martin was the one reg you'd find in the tournaments that the regs never played in. Like 28-runner, $5 <laughs> tournament. No guarantee. Uh, no guarantee. Yeah, there, there was like on FR, they had like a 10-euro mixed PLO mixed Hold'em tournament with like 45 runners. And I think I won it like four times in one week. <laughs> I had like 200 euros first or something. Well... Martin, I always associate you with the UK IPT. I actually don't remember which one I saw you at first. The first one I remember spending a decent amount of time with you was, I think, in Newcastle. I guess we both bust around the same time and we walked down the hill from the casino to the hotel. And at the time you said you were on a really bad live run. Did you find it hard to adjust from going from online to live? Not really, but like it's really hard to get in sample size. And like now, nowadays I see it much more relaxed. I see it more like as a pastime to like the online grind. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, when you grind, like, if I do, like, one trip a month or one trip in six six weeks, and then you get in, like, 30 tournaments a year, that's what I do online in, like, 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so you shouldn't really sweat it too much. You should just make sure that you're, like, properly rolled and that you play well, that you enjoy yourself, and then eventually the results will come, I guess. Well, I'm about to make a liar out of you, Martin, because my first awareness of you was from UKIPT Cork in 2011, the one that Sam Razavi won. It was only your sixth ever live cash. And as I recall, you had very little money to your name at the time. You took yeah. one of the more memorable televised, disgusting bad beats that I think, well, anyone could recall. Check it out if you haven't seen it already. At the risk of dredging up bad memories, can you talk us through that tournament, that bad beat, and maybe your career up to that point? Yeah, basically up to then I was a recreational player who was a student who took the game a bit more serious but wasn't like making a living on it or planning to make a living out of it. And like back then they had this like huge mega satellites online and it was on like a Wednesday when my friend won the seed for the weekend and he asked me to join and I was like, I had like, I don't know, three or 4k to my name <laughs> and it was like a five, 550. <laughs> And I was like, yeah, why, why not? Like, I'm going to join you and just buy in directly. And we, we slept at some travel lodge, swapped at <laughs> 15%. <laughs> he busted like level two. And I just like <laughs> ran, ran deeper and deeper. Yeah, and then uh, somehow I made the final table. And uh, yeah, that was it. But that was basically like a kickstart because the money was nice. Am I right in thinking that before this horrendous bad beat, which I think I'm right in saying was aces against ace-king on a completely dry flop and then running kings, you did do some business, so at least it sort of softened the yeah. pain? Yeah, we basically chopped the tournament. I got the most money, and then I was like, oh, you guys want a drink because the tension was falling off. And Sam said, yeah, why not? But you pay the drinks. And I was like, yeah, no problem. And uh, we ordered like, I don't know, two beers each, two Jäger bombs each or something and like started drinking and then the lady came to collect the money but I was like in a hand and I was just looking in my hand and I had aces <laughs> and she like tipped me on the shoulder and I was like, Nana, give me a second <laughs> <laughs> and then the guy who was playing like his first or second live tournament he was called for betting I think and I knew like he was always going to get it in and then I did a bit of like a speech play because <laughs> that's how you did it back in the days and then <laughs> And then we got it in, yeah, and he got lucky. But it's all right, it's all good. Well, uh, I hope I remember this correctly, but we were in Barcelona once and we were swapping origin stories. And I think you told me that when you started playing, you used to play a small live rebuy tournament uh, in a... In yeah, in my, in, here in, in my hometown, actually. Yeah. And you had a pretty unique strategy back then as, as well, from what I recall. <laughs> Would you like to share that with the listeners? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I was pretty, pretty busto as a student, obviously. And we always used to go there and like we didn't even have money to rebuy. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like an, an anti-less tournament with like 27 runners. And yeah, somehow I managed to win quite often. So that was good. 
Well, in researching for this, and by the way, I did do a bit of research for this interview, contrary to what you said off camera a few moments ago. I noticed a recent tweet from you in the spirit of uh, the Twitter thread started by our former guests, Kenny Hallerton, Stephen Van Sedelhoff. It goes, I raise you to casually 30 tabling in 2013 and features a picture of your mess of a screen with tables overlapping everywhere. I must say mine was just as bad back then. Dara Davey told me a funny story about how he once saw you multi-tabling all manner of $3 and $10 rebuys at the same time as a WCOOP 1K day two. <laughs> Firstly, is that true? And secondly, how did you become such a mass multi-tabler? Yeah, I realized quite quickly that there was a lot of money to be made in like low and mid stakes. Decisions were quite simple back then. Like nowadays, this wouldn't be possible because the game evolved so much and it's like much harder. But back then it was basically, I just had like three rules which I was sticking to, like don't flat a raise with under 20 big blinds and like something really simple like that and always raise your small blind and that worked. And then uh, you would just apply it to like 30 tables or 40 tables and you were just like printing money. Yeah, it was always amazing to me. Like I knew guys who multi-tabled a lot, but they usually had like really nitty stats like eight five. And I was aware you were you were playing maybe more tables than anybody, and your stats were more like thirty two twenty eight. <laughs> I always found it really uh, hard to get my head around how you were able to do it. I think most of us obviously started, and then we built up tables as time went on. I think I peaked at around twenty four, but in recent years I've come down. Yeah, like nowadays I, I can't do it anymore as well. Like I think I do like sixteen or something. 20 maybe yeah and like we know the reasons why but could you explain to our listeners why we play less tables these days yeah like the fields got much tougher in comparison i mean there's still decent money to be made but it's obviously not 2012 anymore the rake got much higher as well the tournaments got much worse much more like turbo heavy hyper heavy which reduces your edge yeah that's pretty much it yeah I guess one thing about the fact that you mass multi-tabled is you must have paid an insane amount of rake over the years. Uh, do you have any sense of how much rake you paid? How much rake I paid? We were just looking it up like one month ago and it was like 215,000 euros. And it wasn't even including all the sites. Wow. <laughs> and how do you feel about the way online poker has gone in the last few years? Obviously, it's an open secret that since Amaya took over stars, the whole ecosystem changed a lot. Yeah, it's going quite bad for everyone. Like I was speaking with like lots of lots of regs recently and everyone is pretty much having his worst year, except you maybe. <laughs> but yeah, it's quite concerning actually. It doesn't feel too good. I still think there's a decent amount of money to be made, but you have to find like your niche and stick to it and have to become a specialist pretty much. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Well, I mentioned Twitter there earlier and uh, in digging up that tweet, I did dig up a really old one of yours featuring Photographic evidence of one of your epic driving drinking tours across Europe, I hasten to say not at the same time, for EPTs and I assume more random bow comps. Do you have yeah. any good stories from those adventures? Uh, the most epic ones I, I really can't share on <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I don't know. Like, uh, Let me just say like one of those involved like, being blackout drunk in like Vatican City at like 6 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> like anyone would. <laughs> yeah. Well, the Germans certainly love their beer tours and they also love to brag, but not necessarily in the same way that other nationalities do. I remember I was at a UK IPT once and you were on the rail and you were talking to another German and you were both bragging about the smallest tournaments you played online. He was like, well, I played the three rebuy. And you were saying, well, I played the one rebuy. And I remember thinking, this is why the Germans are going to win all the money in the end, because the Irish at the time had this thing about like, you don't bother with the small tournaments. The measure of you is the biggest tournament you play and they brag, oh, I'm playing Super Tuesday, I'm playing EPTs and so on. And there were you guys bragging about playing so small. Do you think that's a stereotypically German quality? It might be, yeah. Like the thing is like in poker, it's really important to not really have an ego or not much of an ego. And like, yeah, I could brag like, oh, I played an EPT or I played a 5K or blah, blah, blah. But in the end of the month, it counts how much money you've made. When you played, I don't know, like so many EPTs and you didn't make any money and have nothing to show for it, then that's up to you and that's bad. Then you're probably in the wrong business. Mm. And I don't mind, like I have no problem raging like the hot five or something. When I know at the end of the month, the money is decent and that's what counts basically. And do you think that lack of ego that is maybe a stereotypically German quality, does that, as Dara sort of hinted there, explain maybe the transfer of power, if you like, in poker from the North Americans over to the Germans and I suppose Europeans in general, but Germans specifically? I can't really like comment on the other Germans, but like, yeah, obviously the cliche is that we have like less emotion and like that we are like 
bit cold and like calculated and hard workers, but I can't really like comment for other people. I don't know whether this is true or not, but I always got the sense that you kind of learned through trial and error. You learned by playing because you played so many tables and yeah. and that was how you learned. And I think that was true for a lot of us back in the day. I mean, people used to talk about studying, but usually that just meant asking your friend about a hand and discussing it a little bit. These days, it seems like the consensus is that people do actually have to work a lot harder away from the table and study more formally. Have your study habits changed in the last few years? Unfortunately, not really that much. <laughs> I still enjoy the occasional hand discussion over beers, the live tournament, which is mainly yeah where I take my content from. I mean, I watch like the occasional training course or like talk hands, read a lot on forums and stuff, but that's to be expected pretty much nowadays. Mm-hmm. But I don't do like dedicated study work where I say, oh, like now five days, five hours, I'm going to study biosolvers. I'm, I'm not doing that. You mentioned it being a tougher time there earlier on for you know, the average pro, except Dara. Has that curtailed your travel or has that curtailed the types of games you want to get in these days? Or did you sort of make your money enough over the years at your role to still jump in those games, even if they are a bit skinnier? Yeah, I must say, like, I, I lost a bit the drive and the ability to, like, 40 table. It's just <laughs> not like you, you get older and it, the games don't permit it anymore. And it's just, like, not possible anymore for me. Like, I know back in the days, I probably did, like, I don't know, 60, 70 hour weeks of, like, 30 plus tabling and uh, yeah I slept very bad I, I mean it's basically like a sacrifice you do obviously the money was very good and I still have uh, some of it uh, <laughs> but yeah I just couldn't do it an- anymore nowadays especially when the upside is much smaller yeah I think the upside being much smaller is something which a lot of pros worry about I remember talking to David a few years ago when I felt we'd almost reached the point where it wasn't worth putting the kind of effort we had to put in anymore thankfully it's turned around a bit since then at least for me personally but how long do you see yourself being in poker uh, or do you have any sort of exit strategy actually I don't know like I'm seeing it like year by year but I'm obviously well aware that I probably have to do another job in the next five years next three years I just don't know what. <laughs> and I know you went to college. What did you study? I studied philosophy, German and English a bit. Well, Martin, after seven years of philosophy and numerous degrees and masters, I can promise you that I ended up in poker. So I'm not sure how much that's going to help. <laughs> There's a Bill Murray line in Lost in Translation, isn't there, about philosophy? Lots of money in that game. So. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. No, it, was, uh, it was actually when I was like failing my degree, I was actually like calculating the EV of the degree and then realized the lifetime EV of that degree and realized I'd probably make it in one year back then. <laughs> well, I have to say, I do remember that conversation Dara referred to there. Was, I think we jokingly called it the poker apocalypse at the time. And I think maybe over the years, every two or three years, a group of players or maybe as is the natural ebb and flow of how you're running and variance does make you feel like maybe the flames are biting at your heels, something like that. And we have had those deep and meaningful chats where it's like, oh goodness, you know, if I don't kind of dig myself out of this hole or if I don't turn this year around, it's going to be tough. How have you observed, Martin, the different paradigm shifts? I guess you've been in the game for maybe three of those three-year cycles or something of that nature. Do you feel like there have been big shifts each time? Yeah, it's like a thing uh, which you have to get aware of it and then uh, adjust to it accordingly and uh, educate yourself towards it. And then you'll be fine. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it's not like they are concrete events. They come like step by step. Yeah. And when you hear from them or like new trends, dynamics, whatever programs, then you should put your mind on them, like get your hands on them and like discuss them, uh, get a grip on them. And then you'll be fine, I think. To a certain extent, I mean, the next big problem is going to be AI and bots, which are probably going to screw us over in the next three to five years. And you just can't study PyroSolver and be fine. Yeah. And do you think the sites have maybe the wherewithal to combat against that? Or is there just an inevitability to the development of the technology that will lead to a game that gets corrupted in a sense? Or do you think there is a way to fight back? I mean, I'm not a like computer expert or security expert, but what would prohibit me from like running a second laptop next to my laptop while playing, who's just like running like a real-time computer program, which gives me like the optimal frequencies and solutions? I don't see a way to like combat that. Yeah, it's definitely difficult. I think one of the things the sites are thinking about doing is if they can themselves determine what's close to optimal play and they find somebody playing suspiciously close to that, then they can assume that a human isn't capable of that and they must have some outside help. 
That's really interesting. So you feel, Dara, like the sites are investing in their own AI or their own sort of PO solving software that is trying to look for an equilibrium and then see if anyone's playing close to us. Yeah, I do know a guy who has developed something like that, not for his own play, but for the sites. From what I understand, his business plan is to sell it to the site so that the sites can quickly identify if somebody's playing suspiciously well, particularly if they're playing a lot of tables at the same time. And then they can make a judgment that this person can't be doing that without some sort of outside help. Do you remember when Star said in a chat window that you had to enter some random phrase? <laughs> oh, that's right. I remember that. You were thinking you were what? I had that like plenty of times, yeah. <laughs> that must have been fun when you were 40, Toby. <laughs> <laughs> well, finally, Martin, I mentioned bold comps at the top. I think you're also responsible for at least the popularization of the term business clowns. I don't know if that's one of yours or another one you have borrowed. How did that one come to be? And can you give us examples of business clowns? Yeah, business clown is basically, yeah, I, don't, I don't want to be like too, too bad or like no one should take it personal or something. But business clown is basically like a, like a businessman, like a recreational player who takes the game. I, I wouldn't say he takes it serious, but like he, he has this certain attire about him that, that he doesn't give a fuck. And, <laughs> and it's like splashing around and like playing wild and unpredictable and loose. And that's like a business clown, basically. Could you give us an example? <laughs> I, I can't really picture any myself. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like you, you probably know. Like at life stops, there are these like wealthy guys who like splash around. Well, you're keeping it very polite there at the end. Martin, <laughs> it is always fun to chat to you. I thought we'd get a little more out of you there at the end, but that's okay. Um, thank you so much for stopping by. Darren and I always love to catch up over a beer, and it's lovely to get you on record now as well. Thanks for having me. See you soon, guys. Yeah, see you soon, hopefully, Martin. Unfortunately, Ian is out sick this week, so I'm going to fly solo with the news. The World Poker Tour Montreal at Playground Poker Club attracted a field of 792 entries, which meant an over 1 million Canadian dollar overlay on the 5 million guarantee. The event culminated with a stacked final table that included Sorrel Mitzi, Upeshka da Silva, Jonathan Little and eventual winner Patrick Serda, who beat former WPT winner Emma Samovic heads up. When we left you last week, the Unibet sponsored IBO was down to its final day. In the end, the event was won by Englishman Joseph McKeown after a four-way deal that included former guest the great Mick McCluskey, with everyone taking home between 20 and 25k. All eyes have been on Malta this past fortnight. The Battle of Malta was ultimately won by Julian Strapoli after a five-way deal, banking all the final five a six-figure score. Shout out here to former guest Andy Hills on his impressive sixth-place finish for 53k and friend of Unibet poker Matthias Mulhuisen, who came eighth for 30 grand. At the time of recording, Unibet Poker's Espen Jorstadt has made the final eight of the Malta Poker Festival. On a table headed up by German pro Fabian Gums. Espen is six of eight with 20 big blinds. All eyes will be on the live stream as the Norwegian maestro hopefully navigates his way to top spot and 150k. Shout out to Gary Banks and last week's guest Kat Arnsby who both made it deep into the money of this one. It was a good weekend overall for the Unibet crew. I managed to come fourth in the high roller while our strategy contributor Diva Byrne cashed the main and a side event. Congratulations finally to Sickly News and Ian Simpson who took down a platinum pass exactly one week after bubbling one incredible effort there from Ian he will be playing his biggest ever buy in the huge 25k event in the Bahamas in January well that will be it for season 7 and the news I hope to see Ian back for season 8 get well soon buddy for a strategy segment this week, I want to welcome back to the show UKIPT Cork champion, four-time APT player of the year, and recent runner-up in the WSOP Millie Maker, Sam Razavi. Welcome back, Sam. Guten Tag. How's it going? Hi, Sam. Great to have you back, Sam. Well, firstly, when you were on the show last time round, I remember very distinctly you pledged to us that you were going to give winning a bracelet a real go. I think maybe the APT had gotten in the way a few years. Did you realistically think you were going to have a run like this right away? Definitely not, for sure. I've always had a few semi-deep semi runs at the World Series, but you just never know. Sometimes it goes well, sometimes it doesn't, but I never had a deep run straight off the bat. It's usually taken a couple of weeks of tilt before I've got there, so yeah, satisfying. Well, i got to say, I woke up in the wee hours of the morning, I can't remember what day it was, to find you heads up and obviously railed to unfortunately see you come second. From that moment on, I was really keen to have you back on to talk about a key hand maybe on that final table or whatever. You actually have a key hand that came from a little bit earlier and it's the one you want to talk about today, maybe three tables out. 
I guess before we go into the specific hand, though, could you give us a little bit of context to the way it had gone? And, and I know you have a couple of really interesting points you want to make, too, about maybe some adjustments you make deep in big field MTTs, where obviously there's a lot on the line for everybody and maybe everybody isn't playing optimally. Maybe the tendency is for people to tighten up slightly. Yeah, one thing that really springs to mind, I don't know whether it was just bad luck or what, but I think there were five tables left and I was plodding along quite nicely and then uh, our table breaks and I'm shifted to this one table which was just literally ridiculous for a field that size to get down to like the final five tables and then to have so many beasts sat on one table out of the four and I was sat to the direct right of Joseph Chong and I honestly for the life of me can't remember the other guys I, I like I recognize them by face and I can't I, I only remember Joseph Chong but I just thought this is ridiculous and to top it off there must have been literally about half the chips in play on the table so clearly action table and I just checked the clock saw that this table was the next to break so I thought that's it I'm just gonna lock up you know I don't think I played a hand I thought you know, these are the adjustments you really have to make. I mean, some people might have a different opinion. I don't know what, but I just think preserving the chip stack and putting myself up against you know, another group of players that, you know, not saying there's many fish left, but the, a, a table that I could navigate much easier. And I think there was one particular hand you mentioned to me before we started recording that sort of sums up how you took a slightly different approach as well. Aside from a general nittiness, maybe at a table full of beasts, there was one spot as well where you probably played differently to normal. Yeah, it was really bizarre. I opened under the gun, had ace-king. I think I opened for slightly on the bigger side, and we're coming towards the end of the day, actually. And Manic Lerza, is that how you pronounce it? Manic Lerza flats in mid-position and folds round to the big blind. He piles it all in. He's got us both covered, but I was, you know, effective. I had 50 big blinds. And, I mean, I did think about it probably for five minutes. But it's it's just a strange one. I mean, I don't know. You know, it'd be great to get your opinion if we have the time. But, you know, I thought the best case scenario is either ace-queen or the same hand. And then, obviously, do you want to effectively flip in a tournament when there's nearly a million dollars for the winner? You know, it wasn't like a fold that I'm afraid to bust the tournament or whatever. It's more of the fact that, you know, these opportunities really don't come round once in a blue moon. So, you know, thinking that I can maybe pick up the chips in a different way without risking my whole stack in, in, in that one moment. I saw the guy a few days later at the Venetian and he told me that he had ace-king as well. The funny thing is, like, if it's a different tournament, you know, even a main event where it's 1K, maybe it's 100K up top, I think I just snap it off. I mean, I don't know if that's bad or wrong thinking or what, but I think you definitely have to take into account what you're playing for. I think that's a very good point. I mean, there's a difference between, say, a standard run-of-the-mill tournament, like, you know, if you're playing the big 55 online or whatever every night, uh, then, then you can take spots as opposed to maybe, like, if not a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, certainly one of the biggest shots that you're going to have, and it's over a sample size of one. So um, <laughs> it's, it's quite okay to take a more conservative equity preservation strategy, I think, in that scenario. Well, onto the hand in question, Sam. I guess that's what we're all waiting with bated breath for here. I think I'm right in saying there's about 25, 26 left. So I'm going to guess you're maybe eight-handed on whatever table you're at. You're playing about 20 big blinds, maybe, you know, a blind or two north or south of that. You open to 100K at big blind 50 off about a million. The big blind defends, which I guess is the most likely defend. You've ace-10 suited here. So you have a hand that you should be opening, of course. It's got some blockers. It's suited. It plays well against a flatting range. It certainly plays very well against a big blind flatting range. So there's lots of ways you can win this pot. You can't really afford to start letting these types of hands go, I think, when you're this deep and this stack, even though, of course, with the shorter stack, you will want to tighten up a little bit. The flop comes down jack of diamonds, three of diamonds, three of clubs. So you, with the ace, ten of diamonds, have a very nice-looking hand. You've got the flush draw and the over card. You fire 155K into about 275K, and your opponent calls. Now, I want to stop things there and maybe turn to Dara and just ask, Dara, what, what do you make of this so far, maybe both the preflop open and the C-bet? I think the preflop open is fine. Uh, obviously, we should be tightening up a bit, but this is the type of hand we should still go on opening. It's got a blocker, flops well. It's certainly strong enough to open. 
On the flop, I mean, the flop is interesting because it's basically a very hard flop to hit. Apart from the flush draws, there are no draws there. Both players don't have a lot of 3x in their range. So whoever was ahead pre-flop is likely to be ahead. In those cases, I think the best strategy to have is to see bet 100% of the time, but to use a really small sizing. So some sizing is on the big side. That will obviously like put pressure on some hands that might not fold to the smaller sizing. But the reality is that like most of his hands that we're trying to get him to fold just have nothing on this board and they should be folding to a smaller size as well. He's not going to fold a jack to a bigger sizing. He's certainly not folding a three if he happens to have a three. So I don't think there's any great reason to use the bigger sizing. So with Terra's analysis in mind there, Sam, do you like the maybe the change in shift maybe to considering a, a sort of a 25-30% sizing over the sizing you went for? Or in-game did you feel like there were certain dynamics? Or, or like Dara said, there is a bigger range of hands you can certainly get to stop defending now by going for the bigger sizing and did you feel like that was the kind of pressure you needed to maybe leverage against your opponent so deep in a big MTT? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess part of it is given kind of an awkward stack size because I, I noticed throughout the series there's this new sort of trend to really pounce on very small C-bets. So part of that thinking is, you know, I, I mean, I'm probably going with the hand anyway if, if something happens. But if I bet slightly on the bigger side, it takes away that temptation or the tendency to try and make a move against me. But I guess... What kind of hands would you be worried about making the move? Yeah, well, that's the thing. I guess I'm going with the hand anyway. Yeah, so. like if we think he might take a hand like king-queen maybe with one diamond, like we're perfectly happy to get it in against that hand, I think. So we should give him enough rope if he wants to do that. Yeah. I think looking in hindsight, I should definitely bet smaller on the flop. I'm not sure about checking behind to give up the lead. What do you think about that? No, I would never check behind here. Like even if I had a hand which had absolutely nothing, I would still bet because I'd expect him to have to give up a lot of the time because it's just so hard for him to hit this board. Um, yeah. Well, then on to the turn, a pretty blanky turn, but of course our opponent has called, so we're led to believe he has at least something here. Six of spades comes and the action goes check, check. I think it's probably the least controversial street because I don't think we should ever really be uh, betting here once he checks to us. I think it's probably a hand that can improve. We can hit an ace, we can hit a diamond. If he's got sticky on jack 3-3 three, three on the flop, a huge amount of that range is going to be sticky again. He obviously can have a three. He's probably the only person who can have a three X in his range. And, you know, some of his jacks are just not going to go away yet. Although maybe you could set up another barrel to maybe get him off a jack by the river. That's an option. But having gone for the bigger sizing, I think we've maybe less room to do that. I think just as a footnote, part of the problem with betting the big sizing on the flop is that we do kind of narrow the range to hands which are not going to give up on a blank turn. Whereas if we had fired small on the flop, we could potentially fire a bigger bet on the turn and now get him to fold out some hands. But because we've essentially narrowed his range to presumably pretty strong hands because of our sizing on the flop, yeah, we pretty much have to check behind now. Yeah, that's a good point actually as well. That's probably also part of the reason why one should probably bet smaller on the flop is to get you know some random clever float to get a little bit more cash in the pot anyway. <laughs> exactly, yeah. That's the point. Like Sometimes players think that they want to narrow the range in the flop, but really we want him to continue with a reasonably wide range in the flop because then we can prance on the turn if he's just called. Okay, so going to the river, we see the king of spades. Now, that's obviously a card that can smash your range, all right. He checks, and now you're presented with a situation where you can check back maybe pray for a weaker flush draw and hope your showdown is good. Or you can go for the really balls out, big bluff for the majority of your remaining stack. And in the end, that is exactly what you did, Sam. You decided to go for a 425k bet into about 595k, something just north of 70%. It's certainly a meaningful bet. It's certainly a bet that is representative of either maybe an overpair. You might play aces this way. You might play ace-king this way. You might even play queens this way, perhaps. I'm not sure. But it's certainly telling the story to him that I have a king and I really want you to call with your jack. And I suppose the flip side of that is you're hoping because it's a bluff in this instance that he reads the situation for that and ends up folding his jack, making, I guess, what would be a big fold. Sam, first of all, what was your logic? Have I sort of summed it up there or was there any other dynamical stuff at work because of maybe the time and place you were in, World Series, three tables left, million up top? You know, sometimes you've got to do what you've got to do, but you pretty, you pretty much summed <laughs> up. I think I got pretty lucky to specifically hit a king on the river because I'm assuming once he's called the flop, you know, I'm putting him on. Yeah, he might have a, a weaker flush draw. I don't know if he check raises that and tries to get it in himself. So maybe part of that a discount because he does have 
me two to one, I think. So I've narrowed it down to like a jack. Okay, I've got one ten in my hand. So if I'm thinking he's got something like Queen Jack, I mean, he's just snapping me off on the river. He could have King Jack, I guess. But the fact that it's a king, you know, I'm obviously repping the obvious ace king or better. So I just thought, you know, I really have to go for it. And I don't know whether it's good or bad, actually, which is why I chose this particular hand, because I know that these days players are getting very, very sticky. <laughs> it's hard to make people fold like things, <laughs> any pair, you know, and it's just hard to make people fold pairs these days. And uh, I know it's, you know, it's, it's, it's risky me firing the river like that, but I think he can give me credit for ace-king. I don't think he can give me credit for like a, an overpeg. So the fact that I check behind and then bet the river, I think I can credibly rep ace-king, king-queen even, and uh, get him to fold the jack. But yeah, I think I got lucky with the river. I guess I give up. I can't represent anything like if I'm not following through on the turn. So I guess it's just a lucky king. Yeah, I think the king is a good card for us, obviously, on the river, because if we have a sea betting strategy of close to 100% on the flop, then we are going to see about all of our king x, and he's actually going to give up with a lot of his king x. So it's not a great river card for him. In every spot, like if we're trying to be balanced, we need to find some bluffs. Now, as a general rule, missed flush draws usually don't make good bluffs because they block the opponent's flush draws which we're hoping that they're giving up with but the problem is that on, on this particular board and on this run out it's actually very hard to find bluffs period for us because there are not too many hands you know there's, there's no straight draw that misses there's not there are no other draws apart from the flush draw that misses so i think actually this is a pretty good candidate to bluff having the ace is really good because it blocks his ace jack his ace king his ace three. Even having the 10 is kind of useful because it blocks jack 10, which is another jack that he might have at a higher frequency than some of his other jack X. So having got here in, the, in this way, I actually like the decision to bluff and I, I think it is a good bluff. Yeah, and I really like the sizing as well. I think the decision to bluff combined with that three quarters really is the right amount of pressure, if you like. You obviously have a few bluffs in there. This happens to be one of them. But you have a lot of value hands. You have your ace-king. You might even play ace-jack this way. Going for thin value because it does look pretty face-up once he checks the river that he has jack-x. He might even try and bluff himself with a missed flush draw. With that in mind, I really like the two-thirds to three quarters. I think it's exactly the right amount. The other thing is from his perspective, like if he calls all of his jack X in the spot, that's just far too stationary, unless he believes that we're just insanely over bluffing. And actually it's hard to find bluffs for us in this board. So he has no reason to think we are over bluffing. So he actually has to fold quite a lot of his jack X. I think he probably has to fold his queen jack. That would make a bad call. He probably should be calling ace jack some or all of the time. Not just that, that it's stronger than queen jack, but it also blocks our strong hands like ace king and ace jack itself. Well, a fascinating hand, Sam, i got to say. I really enjoyed getting the mind working on that one. And thank you, Dara, for your analysis. It was a Millie Maker tournament. You didn't quite make a Millie, but you made three quarters of a Millie. Not too shabby for four days' work. Yeah, not too bad. We'll take it. We'll add it to the pile. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do remember your stack of Benjamins on your coffee table in your suite. Yeah, that, was, that was the right amount of obnoxious. Yeah, long gone, long gone now. That's the grind. We welcome back WSOP final tableist and now WSOPE champion. According to Dara, he was bussed out just a few short months ago, photograph taking buses and one report suggesting he sold his laptop for food. Seriously, though, his meteoric rise in the poker world and his vast fortune he has just made means that at the tender age of just 27, he is either set for life or rolled for about nine months on the high roller circuit. Maybe more impressive than his win last night is the fact that he got himself out of bed for this interview. He is, of course... The very hungover, Jack Sinclair. Jack, welcome back. Howdy, guys. Yes, yeah, uh, good to be back. Thanks for uh, bringing up the Busto story. Like, right, right off, right off the bat. Yeah. Well, Jack, firstly, huge congratulations. Obviously, incredible result. We're definitely going to get to that. I have to start, though. You're known by many as an assured guy, let's say, a man with a solid enough ego, which I'm sure has been enhanced now. How important is it, in your opinion, to carry yourself with confidence as a poker player? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously a fine line between confidence and arrogance in this game. And, uh, you know, a lot of people go over the over the line quite a lot. I mean, I, I was not feeling too confident, honestly, after Vegas this year, which went terribly for me. And then WCOOP also did not go well for me. So, honestly, I was like in a bit of a slump after that. Wasn't Busto, FYI. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> you were just being frugal taking buses. Yeah. <laughs> It was one bus, okay? One bus. 
<laughs> but yeah, I mean, I really don't know, honestly. Like, you see guys who are super confident and, you know, win everything. But also, I see guys that aren't that confident also winning a lot of stuff. And I see confident people losing a lot. So, I mean, it could just all be variance. It's, you know, at the end of the day, we have to believe that this game is a game of making the correct decision and not of having the correct voodoo or whatever. We have to believe that, right? So if you believe that, then maybe confidence helps you make the best decision. But honestly, like you can't know for sure whether it actually you know, affects as much as people think it does. Certainly arrogance can screw you, though, that's for sure. Like You have to be really careful with that and like not let the ego get so big that you uh, stop trying, you know, stop working on the game. Yeah, I think people in other areas know that there's a kind of a curve for performance that if you don't have enough confidence, that, then that's a problem. But if you have too much confidence, then you start sliding down the far end. I mean, almost every football manager's interview after a match, if they've just won, is, well, we have to keep going. We have to keep our heads on. We have to just think about the next game. And if they've lost, it's, well, we have to pick ourselves up for the next game and forget about this one. It's all about sort of steering on that middle path. Yeah, it's um, fine. I feel like I sort of, you know, let it slip a bit before Vegas, you know, I sort of was ex- sort of expecting everything to go well with little effort. I mean, I, you know, I still think I've played pretty good this year in Vegas, but really just wasn't 100% focused on playing as well as I could. Uh, and the same thing with WCOOP, which I think was a bit worse, honestly, in terms of my performance. I just was sort of expecting results to happen and didn't put enough effort in. And yeah, I was just playing kind of bad, but still like, you know, playing 12 tables or whatever and, and just all the high rollers just playing not amazing but since then like i got some coaching even and and been working on the game a lot more and you know came into this with a, a much better mindset well last week we spoke to your flatmate philip gruesome a man who has won about 10 times as much as you have <laughs> and he talked about players who are inclined towards confidence are also the most likely to have that confidence shook I know you've barely had a setback so far in your Luckbox career, but do you fear that that might happen at some point? <laughs> I felt like that was what happened, you know, in the last few months. Honestly, like it wasn't a particularly long downswing. <laughs> <laughs> there was th- those two weeks you ran bad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but no, I mean, yeah, it did sort of shake my confidence a bit. I was like getting a bit concerned because you know i've not really been on the live grind for too long and i don't really know what i was supposed to do at this point you know once you're playing these high buy-ins and you know all the traveling expenses in terms of buy-ins and expenses is really quite high so if you don't win for half a year or more it can be quite daunting the kind of hole you get into i mean luckily i wasn't particularly deep but i was struggling let's say to have anything liquid at this point you know, I, I was realizing that I was going to have to like sell assets to play tournaments. So it's a good thing that I shipped this one because now I have a bit of cash. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to say your sense of humor always shines through and your sort of acknowledgement of the sort of career and talking there about the lifestyle and how it's an expensive one for sure. You tweeted a couple of weeks ago, on Mondays I celebrate the fact I don't have a job. I'm waking up super late and doing whatever I feel like all day. It's basically the same as every other day of the week. Now, that tweet got a fair bit of traction. Joking aside, is this an accurate glimpse into the life of a poker pro? No, not really. I mean, I wanted to post a tweet because I woke up at like 4 p.m. on Monday and I was like, what do I have to do today? Oh yeah, nothing. And that's, you know, sort of made me chuckle. So I posted it. But actually on Mondays, I make an effort to not do anything because, you know, I normally grind Sunday night. And also Monday is like, it's the sort of uh, start of the week for everyone. Everyone hates Mondays, all this stuff. So it's like my Sunday, basically. I always take Monday off. But the rest of the week, no, I mean, I definitely don't wake up early. I'm not a morning person, but, you know, I still have stuff to do every day. And if I'm doing nothing, it's just, I go insane. Well, speaking on Twitter, after our trip to Nottingham a few weeks ago, you tweeted, the highlight of Millions UK was Darrow Kearney last <laughs> night explaining how he thought I was a massive prick when we first met and how his perception of me was confirmed beyond doubt when he saw my Twitter handle. In all seriousness, how on earth did you come up with the name Jackson Credible? Okay, I have a good story for this one, actually. I didn't have a Twitter account until after I final table the main event. And I decided to make Twitter account and I put my email address in. It's like, oh, this already exists. There's already a Twitter account with this email. I was like, what the hell? And it turns out that I had this Twitter account from like three, four years ago or something. 
and this was the handle jack's incredible i was like i don't remember that at all <laughs> like I could, I could barely remember like even having a twitter account and i was like wow how sick is this name <laughs> like that's, that's, that's did you awesome. black out a lot in those days i, I mean i guess i must have been. <laughs> i don't know it's just a long time ago no i mean like after i saw it, the memory of tweeting like four times or something came back to me i remember i like tweeted like four times had 11 followers and i was just like why am i how am i doing this uh, <laughs> but yeah it was pretty cool to just like find out the past me was clearly like way smarter than i am now <laughs> we mentioned phil earlier there Darren mentioned them you and he share a flat in malta which i've been to very nice spot but when we interviewed phil last week he was in the jungle of mexico and i know you've spent a decent bit of time recently in tbilisi georgia what brings you to georgia and is it poker related or is that more about just kind of finding a spot similar to Phil where he can chill out and where his head's in a good place and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I really like Georgia. Tbilisi is just a really nice city to visit and chill out in. I, I didn't plan on playing any poker, like a little bit online, but the time zone's not great there. It's like four hours ahead of London. So, uh, you know, I played on Sunday and like went to sleep at, I don't know, I had a bad session and went to sleep at like 6am, which is not really what you want to do. But yeah, no, I, I wasn't going there for anything poker related, just some time off. I did actually play in a local 5-5 game just for fun. And then I was like, mm, maybe I should move here and just grind, <laughs> grind this because it, it must be making like a huge hourly in that. Is uh, this the cash game where you own yourself the telly? Yes, exactly. <laughs> I, I want a TV. Yeah, I own an apartment in Tbilisi. Like you do. As you do, yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, the living room, like I, I don't really watch much TV in general. But the living room has this big sofa and then opposite there's just like an empty wall just begging for a TV. And then I, I went and played this cash game just like messing about and played for like a few hours and made like $700. I was like, all right, I'm just going to blow this all on a TV <laughs> for the flat, which is pretty stupid. But I figured like I was only playing for fun. So, you know, it's, it's not real money anyway. <laughs> Are you absolutely sure you didn't move to Georgia because you were broke and Philip threw you out because you couldn't pay your rent? I'm just saying it would make sense. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> I know you do a very good uh, Philip Gruesome impression. I've heard it in interviews. Like, What would Phil sound like if he was telling you to leave? Oh, God, I can't do Phil Bort right now. I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, too much alcohol. Like, yeah, bro, you never pays the rent. Like, got to get out of here. <laughs> I can't do it. I'm too bad. That's very good. The one affectation of his, because I spent the week editing that interview, is he does a lot of, you know, likes. You know, likes. Yeah, you know, like, so crazy. Infinite, <laughs> infinite money. And, like, unbelievable. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we do have to get to that WSOP main event. It was an incredible and we were, we were railing it, but we were also chatting along the way. We were desperate for a guest this week. Before we knew you were going to win the bloody thing, we did want you on the show anyway. We were joking about it saying, well, maybe Jack will win. That'll solve our guest problem. This yeah, was... well, you were Andy Black. <laughs> we were just looking at the field going, one of these guys better win. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah, no, Jack always comes to the rescue. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously what was it like for you it seemed to be plain sailing I know you had a very big stack early on was it just coasting for quite a while I mean I had to work hard this tournament for sure like I it wasn't like I just cooled everyone all the time but I did cooler people when it mattered but I mean yeah it was pretty smooth the whole tournament I don't think I ever had less than 30 big blinds I, I'm just trying to remember you know I, I don't honestly don't think I got below 30 bigs the entire tournament which was pretty pretty sick and because normally I'm just a short stack from day one to, to day four, you know, um, but, but apparently like my spewing was kept to a minimum on this one. But yeah, the final table was pretty difficult, honestly. Like when we got down to five, four, three handed and obviously heads up, like it was a battle. It wasn't just like relaxed, you know, playing tight. At the start of the final table, I was playing pretty tight, but that was the correct strategy according to my coaches. <laughs> so, so that's what I did. But yeah, no, it was, it was obviously very lucky for me, like from start to finish. I mean, I have the bracelet, right? So it must, it must have run good. There was a couple of key hands uh, on your way to victory. One hand that stood out was the 10-9 versus 6-9 on the 986. 8 uh, uh, Yeah, yeah, it's a funny hand, that one. I mean, I'm still not sure if it's a fold, honestly. I'll recap the hand, I guess. So I opened 9-10 and 
I still can't remember his name. <laughs> Sorry, bro. Um, <laughs> the, the boss. <laughs> the the bald Bulgarian called and then check raised on six eight nine. So I have top pair blocker to the straight and a gutter, and I think I had a backdoor flush draw as well. And he didn't even make it huge. So I kind of think I might be getting odds to call even if he's never bluffing. So it maybe is a bad fold, but I was just like so confident that he was never bluffing there that I figured a lot of the time I'm going to just be like really bad shape. And, you know, I'm doing okay versus two pairs, obviously, but sometimes it's just going to like the nine's going to pair and I'm going to double him up or uh, I make the straight and double him up. Or like if I hit the 10, it's going to be like really hard to fold later. And I just didn't want to be put in that situation like against like a clearly nutted range that... Yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, this board gets overbluffed by everyone. You're supposed to be check-raising stuff like 6-5 on this board, and I just don't think he's going to be doing that pretty much ever. Yeah, I have to say, the Twitch chat absolutely blew up for this one. I, I watched it live, and the commentators had a more discerned view, but the Twitch chat absolutely thought it was bonkers. And I have to say, exactly like what you've described there is exactly the mindset or the, the sort of strategy I thought you had employed, which is that this is really murky. Like, I definitely could be good enough here, and I definitely might have the equity, but why take this spot? I have an edge against these remaining guys. I know they're tough competitors, by the way, but I do think you had an edge there. And you just felt like, well, why take this spot? This is like, I can just fold this hand, pretend I had nothing and just move on to the next hand and still have this stack to work with. Whereas it would have felt like a moment where it was all or nothing. And I, I agree with you. If, if you'd rightly discern from your villain that it was a nutted range and not that kind of wider sort of GTO check raise range, I think, yeah, I thought you hit the nail on the head. And I thought it was a really important exploit by you there, which probably won you the tournament, frankly. I think that was a real turning point. At the time, honestly, it didn't feel that ridiculous to me. It was mm. uh, only afterwards, like, where I had, like, several people tell me, that, like, how ridiculous that fold was that I, I sort of was like, yeah, I guess that was pretty, <laughs> I guess that was pretty big fold. But I, I made three big folds to him. In, in fact, like, personally, I was more impressed when I folded the ace-queen suited um, yeah. to his three-bet. That was probably one of my favorite hands of the tournament. <laughs> where, where, you know, uh, whatever. <laughs> like, I just raised two big blinds and fold to the three-bet with ace-queen suited. <laughs> but honestly, like, just when I saw that he had ace-king, I was just like, you know, mm. trying, looking for people to high-five, but <laughs> obviously had no rail, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, there was a similar situation, actually, where I had pocket tens and I opened and somebody flatted and he squeezed the big blind and he had ace queen suited and i just i folded tens there which is like a similar situation to the nine ten i mean i'm probably good enough to call uh in general but it's just huge variance and i'm gonna like end up losing a lot of chips post flop a lot of the time so i just decided to okay two big blinds down instead of you know a possible like 15 or more and like, you know, just massively reduced variance and like, okay, yeah, maybe he could like print money by bluffing there, but I just don't think he's ever going to be taking that spot wide. I was really surprised he had ace-queen suited, honestly. I mean, I think I didn't think he would go that wide for value. Yeah, it certainly seemed like your spider senses were working very well for you. I have to ask the question because you brought it up on our last interview. You told us you were going to go to the World Series, play the main event and win more than first place money by taking Timex to the cleaners. Did you have any <laughs> side money on yourself on this one? <laughs> I didn't, know. But a couple of people sent me a link to some check betting site where you could bet on, on the players remaining. And I think it had me at like eight to one with 12 left, which I thought was too short it seemed like more of a long shot than one and eight at that point um but then when six handed i was five to one and i thought that was a pretty good bet i had that point but i didn't take it i didn't want to be distracted so we yeah, might have to wait for a future result to see you win extra money off the bookies i think the only person dara you could probably answer this one the only person i know of who ever did something like that was neil on the irish open wasn't it neil channing I think Park Parkinson did as well on UKIPT Galway, the very first one. He had bet on himself to win the tournament and did win it. With his sponsors, actually, <laughs> who weren't too impressed. <laughs> uh, yeah, Channing had bet on himself as well. I think it was in running. Channing always feels that the in-running markets are the most exploitable. And that's borne out by, I think there was one year in the Irish Open, I came back as one of the shortest stacks, so I was one of the longer prices. But early on, I trebled up. And the price didn't really move. So if you're actually at the tournament, I think you could probably get some value. But then I think they're quite small markets, so they're not allowed to put too much money on them anymore anyway. 
I mean, um, one thing I learned from Wushu, Thomas Mullocker, as far as gambling goes, it's never get greedy. I think putting a bet on myself with six or 12 left in the main event is definitely getting greedy. <laughs> so for gambling, I think you have to stick to Wushu rules and not get greedy in that spot. Yeah. I guess as professionals, we're generally looking for ways to reduce variance rather than increase it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Otherwise, we might end up busted like certain people. <laughs> But uh, David mentioned Twitch chat there in, the, in your 10-9 versus 6-9 hand. I have to say Twitch chat was living up to its name while I was writing. Towards the end where it was pretty clear that you were almost certainly going to win, most of Twitch chat was just bemoaning that in their view, the worst player on the table was about to win. <laughs> Come on. They, they, they were, but I mean, that's, that's Twitch chat, you know. Wow, that's sick. You don't think there's any crossover between Twitch and our audience there, Derek? Clearly just <laughs> setting fire to that demographic. <laughs> Well, I think Twitch chat, rather than like people who just watch Twitch, I think Twitch chat is a very uh, small thing. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay, good save. Yeah, but one thing I wanted to ask was like your sort of social media presence is growing because you are still relatively new on the scene. You have a great sense of humor, which actually makes you great fun on social media. I think one of my favorite Instagram posts this year was you posing somewhere, maybe it was Tbilisi or somewhere, in a typical Instagram pose. The caption, am I an Instagram model yet? <laughs> are you going to try and expand your social media and is, is that with the view to getting to other areas like being sponsored by a site or is it just something you do for fun oh, I just do it all for them likes all for them <laughs> likes no, I, I, I mean I like it honestly I, I enjoy it I don't like want to be like doing it like it's a job you know I just do it for fun and you know Instagram I find really enjoyable <laughs> I'm like fully addicted to Instagram Twitter not so much. I just post when I have something that I think is like funny, which is kind of difficult when it's only text. And I mean, it's not only text, obviously, but I'm not posting pictures to Twitter. That's what Instagram's for. So, so with Twitter, I'm just like only posting things that are funny. And with text, it's like kind of hard. So I don't post very often on Twitter. But yeah, with regards to your question about what is the purpose? I mean, the answer is I don't really know. I mean, I'm, I just do it for fun. And like, obviously, as a poker player, you want to get sponsorship is like obviously on the mind always have you not been approached yet surely somebody has called you in the last 16 hours no it's really surprising uh, to me because like you, you you tick all the boxes like you're young you're funny uh, you're very good at poker i'll stop but, it. <laughs> but I, mean, I mean i guess it just shows how difficult it is and also actually jack does very good commentary as well i've heard jack's commentary on irish open and with actually cat Aaron's be on a tournament i think it was in malta didn't i do that with you dara <laughs> we did it with me as well, yeah. But the reason why it sticks out that Kat was there was that Kat had never heard of you and she thought your name was Jackson Clare. That misunderstanding happens quite frequently, actually. Yeah. Do you enjoy doing the commentary? Uh, I really enjoy doing commentary, yeah. I mean, again, like I'm completely unaffiliated. I have nothing to, to sell or promote. So, you know, when I do commentary or, or whatever, it's, it's just literally because I enjoy it. And normally... If I'm not playing a tournament and I'm at a live event, I'm going to be probably watching the live stream anyway. So it's better to be in the booth and like, you know, challenging myself to actually say something intelligible about the hands as they go down. It's actually pretty good practice for the game. I know this is a slightly rude question, but do you have any plans for what is now a disgusting amount of money? <laughs> um, no, uh, honestly, like obviously, like I need to replenish a few bank accounts and poker accounts with some some liquid cash not that i'm busto but not that i was busto <laughs> but uh i was, I was running low on cash you running low on liquid cash yeah yeah just the liquid stuff is uh i mean that's really like all the i would plan i mean i don't know what i don't know what i do now i guess i have a good birthday party this year um that's coming up. And then I'll play the 25K in the Bahamas next week. I'm going to play the 25K in January, also in the Bahamas. So, uh, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I guess I just play more poker and keep doing what I'm doing. Well, before we go, Jack, I have to ask the question. When you were here the last time, you said that I was your toughest heads-up opponent ever when we battled earlier this year in the JP Masters. I really want to know if that's still true. <laughs> I knew that question was going to come up. Um, <laughs> I... Only because I have to remind people that I actually like go deep once in a fucking blue moon. <laughs> I think that you were both very difficult opponents. <laughs> uh, that means you weren't, David. That sounds like a <laughs> shite now. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's a close call for sure. Like, But the thing is with the heads up against Laszlo, we were 100 big blinds deep 
at the start with a 90 minute clock against you we're on like a 30 minute skipping levels clock and we started the heads up like 30 bigs effective or something but that's the really kind of part of the game though really <laughs> and so <laughs> laszlo put me in a lot more difficult situations but only because like you know the game tree allowed it like so i uh, could have had you a thousand deep jack jesus the things i would have done to you yeah exactly it could have been difficult right so yeah i mean I, i'd say this heads up was definitely a bigger challenge also with so much more money on the line it's like <laughs> requires a bit more um, a bit more focus i mean i was drunk when we played heads up as well so you you were drunk and to be fair the difference between first and second we were playing for the buy-in of this tournament so <laughs> yeah exactly but they all mean a lot i really enjoyed the irish open uh, heads up <laughs> as well this one may be slightly more pressure and, and a little bit more difficult i think well, look, Jack, I have to say congratulations once again. You are a gentleman. You are very good to give us the scoop. There are many poker players out there who would have told us, go fuck yourself. I did <laughs> tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we do, we really appreciate you sticking to your word and joining us on the show today. It's been great chatting to you and just over the moon for your great result. Yeah. Thanks a lot, guys. I appreciate it. And, you know, it's always fun to chat with you guys. And also for everyone listening that was on my side, big thank you because the support was absolutely incredible for this tournament. And you're yeah. all invited to his birthday party. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe. Uh, <laughs> your true colours finally came out right at the end. <laughs> Sorry, guys. It's a VIP-only party. <laughs> Take care, Jack. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot, Jack. Thanks. Appreciate it. Playing us out this week is a track chosen especially for Jack from the incredible soundtrack composed by Michael Giacchino. This is The Glory Days. again to Antonio Martin Sam and Jack that's a wrap for season 7 our biggest season to date as usual a big thank you to Unibet Poker and the team Christopher Natalie Mai Kasia Shirley Patrick Sophie and the recently departed Simon thank you also to our chip race team Willie Tom Ian and Divey your contributions all season are very much appreciated by Darren and I to our season 7 guests you were all brilliant please come back again and last but not least thanks to everybody out there listening a quick shout out for our YouTube channel which has been growing nicely subscribe to us there and you will get notifications of upcoming strategy content we will be back at the end of this month with a very special one-off 50th episode from well where else but Dublin the place where the show began we will be covering the Unibet Open Dublin which takes place in the newly refurbished Bonington Hotel from the 20th to 25th of November no spoilers but I can promise you that Dara and I will be welcoming back a few familiar faces so be sure to check out that episode until then from Dara Ian and myself good night and good luck <laughs>